Welcome to this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. The Art Gallery of Ontario in Toronto, Canada, is one of North America's preeminent art institutions. For more information, please visit us online at ago.net. We are delighted to offer you this podcast of a talk by William Ewing, co-curator of the exhibition Edward Steichen in High Fashion, The Condé Nast Years, 1923-1937. to I would like to thank the group The Smart Women for their support of education programs. William A. Ewing is a noted curator and author with hundreds of exhibitions and dozens of publications to his credit. He has organized shows for museums as diverse as the Museum of Modern Art in New York, the Centre Georges Pompidou in Paris, the International Centre for Photography in New York, the Museum of the Fashion Institute of Technology in New York, the Kunsthaus Zurich, the Serpentine Gallery and the Hayward Gallery, both in London, the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts, and the Musée du Lycée Lausanne, of which he has been director for the past 14 years. His books have featured many subjects, notably the human body, the face, the portrait, dance photography, scientific photography, and floral photography. His monographs have included books on Erwin Blumenfield, George Heunigen Huen, Dan Wiener, and many other photographers. Most recently, Mr. Ewing was a curator of the 2009 New York Photo Festival, and for many years he has taught at the University of Geneva. Unfortunately, due to technical difficulties, we're joining Mr. Ewing a few minutes into his talk. Another painter of the period, previous 20 years previous to Steichen, was John White Alexander. And I find also here wonderful correspondence. John White Alexander was American, like Steichen, went to, went to uh, Paris, where he believed uh, any educated artist had to go. Perhaps some of you saw the great show at the National Gallery of London last year about the, the importance of Paris for Americans. You had to go there. You had to go to Paris. And uh, Steichen himself took that advice at the age of 21 and got on a boat and went to be educated. And John White Alexander was simply older than he was by 20 years and had made a success in Paris as a painter. And actually, they crossed paths coming back. But Steichen once had the opportunity of meeting him and photographing him. Um, and although we've never found a photograph, nobody's ever located the photograph. This is a, a, a painting from 1897 done in Paris by Alexander. Alexander was a wonderful writer, too. He was in the circle with Whistler and Mallarmé, and he, and he settled in... Um, White, uh, Alexander settled in uh, Whistler's neighborhood in Paris and said, an hour in Paris is worth years in New York. He also painted Rodin, and I feel that there was a very good chance they actually met there because Steichen became a very, very good, much younger friend and devotee of Rodin. And White also wrote, the American goes to Paris as though returning to his inheritance and his own people. And then he went back to America and established himself as a successful portrait painter. And this is Steichen in memoriam, a nude of 1904. And here's the two, here are the two pictures together. And I'd like to digress a bit here on the form of the of the of the Pot, the pot here and the, and the sphere there and their significance for painters of the period. Uh, 
there was a feeling that women's identities were completely subsumed into the rounded contours, uh, uh, the containers they embraced. Their identities were entirely circumscribed by their maternal capabilities. And I'm going to quote from a wonderful article about uh, Edward Steichen's socialism, because the role of the woman was definitely in the, in the soft domestic sphere for German socialists, whereas the men were in the hard-edged, uh, cutthroat world of capitalism. Uh, Melinda Boyd Parsons writes the following. Through their poses and gestures, the models with the black vase and the brass bowl contained those vessels, just as their bodies contained wombs with the seeds of the future. By deleting their hands, the instruments of, such la of labor, uh, it, it effectively freed women from the thought that they had to produce with their hands. They had to do manual things, except, of course, what was required in the house. Furthermore, Steichen's women's faces were often obscured, shadowed, or placed in profile, a symbolist device preventing the viewer's first uh, direct, sorry, preventing the viewer's direct engagement with the woman and effectively insulating their ethereal presence from any external insult or corruption. Time and again, the women in Steichen's portraits were presented as inspiring visions of natural and domestic beauty whose loveliness and purity were so removed from the cutthroat activities of capitalist industrialism. They were meant as a spiritual refreshment to the minds of men wearied by their struggle. <laughs> Our times have changed. <laughs> or haven't. And here we have just another Whistler, uh, another John White Alexander, to show the spirit, the sensuous flow of garments. And this teaches us something else, too, that Steichen, like White, like Alexander, were adept in the painting of women's clothes. So well before Steichen becomes a photographer, well before he becomes a fashion photographer, excuse me, he has this under his belt. When Steichen first came to Paris, he got on a bicycle and drove straight to the World's Fair. 1900, straight to the World's Fair, where Rodin had a pavilion. Rodin was not acceptable to the authorities at that point. He was a scandal. So he was only allowed to build his pavilion outside. But because he was so wealthy from his commissions, he, he was able to build a huge, a huge pavilion outside. But Steichen, even if he hadn't gone inside, would have noticed that over the gates of the World's Fair, there was a magnificent statue called La Parisienne. And what that meant, essentially, was the elegant Paris woman. And this painting is also called La Parisienne. It dates from 1882. It's Giron, the, the, the artist Giron, Charles uh, Alexandre, femme, femme au gant, dit La Parisienne, 1885. And here I'm going to jump you forward, cruelly, to 1935. Steichen. And I'm going to put them side by side. And you see it's almost the same picture. It's a kind of updating. I don't know if he ever saw this painting, quite frankly. I have no idea. Here you have a floral motif going down the side of the painting. And you have the woman, uh, the elegant Parisienne, leaning gently against uh, uh, a table. Hat, scarf tied here. Uh, and here you have the Steichen. If you look carefully, the motif actually says the word Vogue. Vogue, 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 Vogue. And it was probably meant as a cover. 
although we never found it used as a cover. She too is leaning, but notice the body language. These hands are not meant to do any work. These hands are not meant to open a carriage door. These hands are not meant to ever pick up a mop. These hands are just meant to, to, to be handed out to gentlemen callers for light, to be lightly kissed and ungloved by female servants. This woman, we know, drives cars and is tough and knows what she wants and is going to marry well and if she gets divorced, make sure she gets a good settlement. Uh, this is the modern woman. But what an astonishing comparison between, in terms of form itself. So although Steichen, we can claim, is definitely a great, innovative fashion photographer, we're beginning to see that he actually is recycling or relying on, on a lot of motifs from the past. Here's another one, the fashion plate. Of eight, a fashion plate, a typical fashion plate of 1859 with two women at the piano two young girls at the piano, because as you know, young girls were expected to have piano in order to entertain uh, the, in the domestic sphere, and also because it was considered good for their intellectual development. It prevented any uh, nasty ideas about politics coming in. Uh, it was safe and entertaining for the men when they came home from those cutthroat days, ripping each other's eyes out at work. And Steichen gives us a modern conception here of two women at the piano in dresses by Vionnet, and it's almost the same picture. Uh, lest we always think that our era is more progressive than others, and that the modern woman really is born in the 1920s, I'm going to read you this quote about piano playing, uh, and then give you the date. This is from a, a journal, a French journal in translation, um, and it reads, unless there is discovered a sharply defined aptitude, a girl should be kept away from the stool and pedals of a piano. Instead of relentless technical exercises, our modern young woman golfs, cycles, rows, runs, fences, dances. While she once wearied her heart out playing gotchok, she now plays tennis and freely admits that tennis is greater than Thalberg. Piano playing as an accomplishment is passing. Life has become too crowded, too variously beautiful for a woman without marked musical gifts to waste it at the piano. Better that she goes to a piano recital than hears a great artist interpret her favorite composer. 1869. The advantage of, of the reason fashion plates often showed pianos was because it gave the opportunity to flounce out the the, the dresses beautifully. And this would be, Steichen is using it to advantage here. He's got the two Vionnet dresses, the white and the black. So he's giving you the, the he's telling the women of, of Vogue magazine what the dress looks like when it's seated and what the dress looks like when it's standing up. The piano was just a prop more than anything. But now I have to give you a little background about fashion magazines because this is another explanation of why Steichen would be so successful in what he did. As far back as the Ancien Régime, you find interest in French fashion in magazines. We go back to 1672 to the Mercure Galant, which according to cultural historian Mary Davis, quote, 
provided the upper classes with the tools necessary for a lifestyle of elegance and panache. And fashion was central to the enterprise of living well. 1672. The Mercure Gallant wasn't the first publication to, to report on fashion. The daily newspaper Le Courrier Francais did that as early as 1649. But the Mercure reported on fashion systematically. And in 18, 1678, it introduced the fashion plate, the engraving, the copper engraving, uh, and even reported on uh, where you could buy the materials. So the, this journal established the tradition of hiring the best painters of the day, in fact, painters of the Versailles court, painters of Louis XIV, to make these beautiful plates. And it began the tradition of the great fashion illustration. So more than 300 years ago, the formula of the fashion magazine that we have today, which is a clever mix of image, text, and advertising, was already established. And one of the funniest things when you read the history of the French magazine, you go from 1640 up to the present, and you say to yourself, wait a minute, wasn't there a revolution in there somewhere? But fashion was too important for the French to ever allow something as unimportant as a revolution to have any impact. Uh, after these, but going back to the 1640s, after these great groundbreaking magazines, many other magazines of lifestyle and fashion sprang up. Sometimes every four, there are periods where it happens every four or five years. But it wasn't until, until 1785 that France had its own truly self-professed fashion magazine, Le Cabinet des Modes. Its color illustrations were particularly beautiful, and in turn it spawned a plethora of other competitive publications, the most creative being Journal des Dames et des Modes in 1797. And the fashion illustration was really by now truly an exquisite thing. And for the first time, it was actually shown independently of fashion as an artwork in salons and so on. Also, they were, the fashion illustration had started, this is 1859, remember, sorry, so it's quite late, but the fashion illustrations by 17, late, late 18th century had started to include realistic settings. They were no longer just beautiful depictions of dresses. They were now showing women what, they had, what it was like to wear their dresses at the opera or at the racetrack and so on. Now this, these magazines had in, stimulated the development of the fashion industry and this, with, in conjunction with the Industrial Revolutionized, fertilized the field. The bourgeoisie grew in size, paper became more plentiful, fell in price, the postal service was developed, lithography was invented, the department store was invented, censorship was abolished in 1881, the sewing machine was invented, and all this meant that more and more women had more and more access to imagery and to the facility of actually creating garments themselves. But they needed guidance, and they needed guidance. The guidance was given by these fashion magazines. Another key development, of course, relating to our Steichen story, was the spread of ready-to-wear clothes, and in particular, the emergence of haute couture in the 1850s. Haute couture actually had the status of art, drawing artists into its glamorous web. 
And new magazines of great beauty and intellectual heft, Victor Hugo, for example, writes for them, Stephen Mallarmé, um, contributed to them. Actually, Stephen Mallarmé started his own fashion magazine, which ran for, I think, seven issues, called La Dernière Mode in the 1870s. So the dresses that were in the magazines required a lot of fabric, and the fabric meant that industry had to pump out more fabric. So the industry grew richer, and the industry needed advertising. So the whole thing was a kind of synergetic uh, situation, uh, which spiraled larger and larger outward into the society. And by the end of the 19th century, the Steichen was arriving in Paris. The cultural landscape was dotted with fashion and lifestyle magazines. I found also, just recently, the first reference to a fashion magazine, the first reference to a fashion mag the idea of a fashion magazine with photography, excuse me, with photography, is dated 1875. And I found this in the Photographic News in London. And this is what, in a little paragraph at the end of an article, uh, this gentleman says, what I would venture, I won't put on my English accent, what I would venture to propose that some enterprising publishing firm should issue a monthly magazine containing the usual letterpress relating to the fashion of the times, but that instead of its older style of colored engravings and woodcuts, to replace them with photos from life. And if the book is well appreciated in the matter of paper, good type, with a neat and attractive cover, it will meet with a good demand. And this is interesting, he calls it the book, because that's what fashion experts, that's what the people who work for the fashion magazines today call them. They, call, they don't call, at Vogue, they call the next issue the book. Uh, so that was someone who really, who really could see the future. Now, this is a more up-to-date fashion magazine, uh, fashion illustration by Georges Lepape, 1910-1911. We're gonna, that date, you can kind of guard in your heads. You see women in, in a uh, salon trying on hats. There's a big hat in the corner here, and there's a mirror. There's a woman sitting looking at herself in the mirror, and there's another form here. Um, and there's some gentlemen in the back here caught in the mirror just to add the counterpoint of the, of the uh, male presence. And here's a Steichen from 1935, and if you put them beside each other, it's almost the same picture. The big hat in the corner, the big hat in the corner. Look at the scalloped mirror, and the scalloped mirror, and the woman, at the, woman looking, at the, looking in, into the mirror, but in an Art Nouveau kind of sensuous line, whereas here it's much more deco. Look at this, look at this, this angle here, it's almost like the the, uh, this, the, the metro sign for the, for the London tube. There's a modernity to this look that you don't quite find here. There's a straight, a straight uh, uh, rectilinear look here that you don't have here. So the periods are well reflected, but it's almost the same picture. And what I'm trying to say is not that Steichen consciously uh, copied, perhaps he did, but he certainly knew about these, he, about these designers, and he had seen these magazines in the homes of the many wealthy people and art salon hostesses like, uh, like uh, Gertrude Stein, who he visited on occasion. Uh, he knew about 
the aspirations of the upper classes and the importance of fashion in French life, and he was living there. But Steichen, we'll remember, was also a painter before he gave it up in 1922. And here is a, a cover of Vogue that he actually painted. He was a sufficiently famous enough painter for Vogue, American Vogue, to take a Steichen painter, uh, picture of an orchard for the cover of the magazine. So you see how why, you're beginning to see why Mr. Condé Nast, who is an avowed Francophile and believed that Paris was the mecca of fashion, was attracted to Edward Steichen. And then, there's a wonderful moment in 1911 when certain Paul Cornier, who is the, uh, the director of a, of a French fashion library and a critic, decides that he wants to support Paul Poiret. He wants to boost Paul Poiret, the great, the great Art Nouveau designer, into kind of pole position in the French fashion scene. And he writes an article about Poiret for the very prestigious magazine called Art and Decoration, Art et Decoration. And who do they hire to make these pictures? But Edward Steichen. Edward Steichen has had no experience in quotation marks except everything you've seen. You've seen those portraits. You've seen those women. You've seen those women lounging in their great dresses. You've seen those powerful men. You've seen someone who is ultra-confident, who's not going to be intimidated when he comes to the Paul Poiret studio. And so he makes what are considered today to be the first real fashion photographs in that they are complex pictures you don't have to be interested in fashion. Uh, you, you can be simply interested in pictures. I'm going to show you two. This is considered by many the first real masterpiece of photography. Paul Poiret dresses, two shown on the stairway, uh, where he is, he is really, by shooting from below, elongated the tubular form that Poiret was famous for at this point. And I'm just going to take a moment to talk about this wonderful correspondence about these two men. They were born in the same year, only weeks apart, only weeks apart. They were both working class. They, were both, they both had mothers that pushed and pushed and pushed and said, you can do it, you can do it, you can do it. And fathers that said, don't be silly, get a job. They were both collectors of artists in the sense of collecting artists' friends and collecting artists' works. They both ran galleries. Uh, Poiret's gallery is called Barbezange, and Steichen's was called uh, 291, which, he, of course, he ran with, uh, under, the, under the leadership of uh, Alfred Stieglitz. But they both had galleries where they could show their friends' work. And they both believed in the superb publication. In fact, uh, Paul Poiret decided that the only way he was really going to become a celebrity in the fullest sense of the word, which he, celebrity, he craved celebrity, but in those days you actually had to do something for celebrity. It's a little different today. Um, and he thought the best way would be to have the best artists like Erib and Le Pape draw his pictures, print them on the best possible paper imaginable, 
and make the most beautiful books possible in limited editions. And this is exactly what Steichen was doing with Stieglitz, with camera work, at the same period. There's another nice correspondence. The pictorialists, and remember Steichen at this early point is a pictorialist, in a nutshell, suppressed detail. They suppressed detail in favor of the overall mood. You didn't want to see the rivets on the bridge. You just wanted to see the sweep of the bridge. And I found Poiret said this, I find my gowns most satisfying without the details of which they are composed when these details disappear in the generous harmony of the whole. And that could have been a, a declaration in defense of uh, pictorialism. The two were also attacked. Hideous, barbaric, said the French press about, you could actually see the body of the woman under the dress. This was hideous and barbaric. And Steichen was being attacked back in Milwaukee for these scratches that were supposed to be trees by outraged uh, journalists. So these pictures, 11 of them were published in Art and Decoration, uh, really signified his entry into fashion, but 11 years before he would be called, 12 years before he'd be called by Condé Nast. And Steichen himself was really dismissive of these pictures. He said, I suppose they're the first real fashion photographs, but he showed no interest in going any forward. So if you go back to my title, The Right Man in the Right Place at the Right Time, we can say that at this moment in 1911, Steichen is certainly the right man, and he's certainly in the right place, but it's not the right time. And now the second three-hour part of my lecture commences. I'm going to jump now quickly through a few of the pictures uh, of Steichen at, while he's at Vogue and Vanity Fair, Countess de Polignac, who's the daughter of the great couturier uh, Jeanne Lanvin in 1926. I don't want to spend too much time on these pictures. I just want to give you a flavor. All of these pictures are upstairs on the wall. Uh, Evening Gown by Chanel in 1924. And if any of you know your photo history and you marvel at those great Irving pens where he presses people into corners, well, there's Steichen doing it uh, 25 years earlier. The other thing I can say, this is a footnote, is all the great fashion photographers look at everything that's been done before them. I had a I had a, this is a real tangent, but I can't help it. Uh, years ago, I did a Heunigen Hune retrospective. This is a photographer who came after Steichen. I had a young intern, and when she saw the catalog we did, she said, oh, you did this. And I said, yeah. She said, oh, my sister works for Ralph Lauren. And Ralph Lauren came in the other day with 24 catalogs. He handed them out, and he said, copy these. <laughs> so you know, these people are fast on their feet, and they, they absorb like sponges what's gone on beforehand. This was Steichen's favorite model, Marion Morehouse. Didn't like fashion herself much. Didn't give a damn. Um, but she really liked the good life. She ended up marrying. Uh, E.E. E. Cummings and becoming a photographer in her own right. But at this point, she's just a fabulous model. Whatever she put on looked fantastic. And as a result, if Steichen could have Marion Morehouse, he did. Using mirrors to, oh dear, I'm losing my structure here. Um, I, think I'll be, I think I'll be okay. 
Most of the time, Steichen was in the studio, but sometimes he went out. He went to the racetrack, for example, uh, to mix, mix his photographs and keep, an, keep a kind of feeling that he was also in and out of the, the real world. And uh, a Steichen masterpiece, a mix of different styles. The title was simply on Georges Bacher's yacht, and the styles are all identified in the caption. There's some Chanel and Rebu and uh, Scaparelli. I don't know what else is in there, but that's not important for the moment. What's important is the mood. And they are completely believable, completely credible. You feel you're on the boat with them. You don't feel their models acting or putting on. You feel that they're born in those clothes. And I think you'll agree with me, although you can come up outraged afterwards if you don't, uh, that that's one of Steichen's great gifts. You never question the rightness of the clothes on these women. And yet, most of the time, he was working like any job, jobbing photographer. He was going to work at 9 o'clock in the morning, and he would be told that, you know, Gary Cooper, well, maybe he was told the week before Gary Cooper was coming in, but he didn't have hours with these people. These people were busy. He had 20 minutes, 40 minutes. He had to get a good picture. And maybe he had a headache that day, uh, hadn't slept well, or maybe, you know, that wife was, with the alimony was bugging him, and I don't know. But, you know, people who work nine to five every day uh, have to do it. It's the mark of any professional when they don't feel like it, and when they're not feeling creative. And yet, you find in Steichen, you never feel that. You never feel a bad day. And then Steich, a Steichen painting, I'm not going to go much into this, but I just wanted to remind you, I'd said he was a painter, a celebrated painter. Here he is in a period where he's in love with the, the Fauves. And a painter brings something to photography that photographers don't bring if they don't have this background. I've noticed this over and over again, whether it's Cartier-Bresson or George Hoenigen-Hune or Horst, because a painter has to draw every square millimeter of a surface. He has to fill it. He has to think about it. So by the time Steichen is going to come to Condé Nast, he's already done that over and over again. He's had to figure out what he's going to do with those hands. He's got to figure out what he's going to do with that back, backdrop. He's got to figure out the upper left and the upper right corners. And you will see over and over again that great gift for organizing. And I'd like to quote at this point, I think, just uh, something about Steichen. Sorry, a quote a bit from Steichen himself, what he has to say about this moment where he is not only the most reproduced photographer, but, and this always goes down in Western capitalist countries, <coughs> the highest paid. I always get a gasp when I say he was earning more or less a million dollars a year in today's terms, just at Vogue and Vanity Fair, and earning another million in today's dollars um, with his advertising work. And this was during the Depression. Today, photography has a new momentum. As well as a collaborator, it is an invader, a discoverer, an iconoclast. The intelligent photographer has definitely displaced all petty trickery that made for imitation of the other arts. That he's taking a swipe at his old friend Stieglitz there. Petty imitation of the other arts. The meticulous detail, the biting precision with which a lens can draw an image is of such beauty that any arty blurring or diffusion of, or imitation, in imitation of bad painting becomes nonsense. I no longer want to make wallpaper for the rich. And he called himself a designer, a, design, a builder. He said, I want to work 
with business like an engineer. Photography is a modern art because it is a factor and in and a contributor to our time and not because it imitates or is subservient to any other medium. Now, the painting is a great source of knowledge about Steichen and I'm going to run through a number of, a number of parallels between painting and his photography that have been suggested by one of our uh, contributors to the catalog who is not with us today, the curator um, Toby Abetzula from the Kunsthaus, and he found a number of delightful parallels. Uh, we're going to, uh, Madame uh, de Senon, 1814 Ingres, and a Steichen from 1931. Notice in each picture the handling of the hands, the arms the tilt of the head, the position of the camera. Uh, it's such a joy to look at Steichen's. Yesterday I was giving a tour spontaneously to um, a woman who was particularly interested. And I said, and look here, he's, this is an element from Dutch still life. He's taken this. You know where they have the table and something hangs over it to kind of give dimensionality? And there's a picture in the Steuben glass shop where that, that trick is used. And I hadn't seen it before. She said, well, you've seen so many things. And I said, no, I just saw it now for the first time. Uh, and I've stood in front of audiences like you, and I've seen things in Steichen photographs for the first time. Case uh, van Dongen, Madame de Noailles, the great patroness of, of uh, contemporary art, modern art of the period, and Steichen a year later. Now. It's so tempting to think there was a direct influence, but I don't think that's a significant uh, a question here. I think what's interesting is that it's the culture speaking, and Steichen was really a kind of postmodernist in that sense. He was able to adjust and grab and take because of the rich history he had absorbed. Christian Schad, Edward Steichen a year apart. Sometimes, curiously, the Steichen comes before the painting. Ancre, Monsieur Beltin, Steichen, Winston Churchill, 100 years apart. Precisely 100 years apart, those two pictures. So we hesitate when we say innovator. Uh, we, we know, because innovating for a new medium is one thing. I think there's probably some great McLuhan in here, come to think of it. I haven't, haven't uh, put my little head around that. Christian Chad, Edward Steichen. Look at that hand. Look at that claw. And look at the way it paralleled in the reflections and the lines. There's, you can, the, the, the most wonderful way to learn about Steichen photographs is to take tracing paper. And put the tracing paper over it, and just and just trace out the main blocks. John Sharkovsky, the wonderful curator at the Museum of Modern Art, <coughs> who hated Steichen, but that's beside the point. Here, tried to suppress everything he'd done. That's another lecture after lunch. Said Steichen was so so good at at structuring the image to look good on the printed page that a good, a Steichen survives, the power of a Steichen survives even in a bad photocopy. And bad photocopies are a trick we curators use because if, it, if, you, if the image is still terrific there, you know it's even better when you have the beautiful vintage print in your hands. 
Du Parmigiano, 1530, Edward Steichen. I like the way Marion Moorhouse there is looking over at the, the Renaissance. It makes for a little unintended joke, but Steichen would have liked that because Steichen also was a terrific editor of photographs. And I leave you there because I think probably we're ready for some questions. With the question, people say, is he relevant today? You know, it doesn't look like fashion photography today. And I say, well, there's one relevance. That's a novel that just came out a month or two ago with a Steichen on the cover. And another relevance, a month ago, I was talking to Tim Walker, who's a British photographer. And I didn't know who he was, and he didn't know who I was. And somehow we came around to Steichen, and I said, oh, I did this book. Oh, you did this book. Uh, I'm a fashion photographer. Oh, you're Tim Walker. Oh, yeah. And he said, oh, I just based a series on the Benda masks. There are pictures upstairs of these women. There's a woman behind a tree with this beautiful mask on. And this was a sculptor, a New York sculptor at the time, the name of Benda. And Tim said to me, are they, is it painted on the face or is it a real mask? I said, no, it's a real mask. He said, well, I've just done a series based on that. And I said, thank you for telling me that. Thank you, because once again, it's another indication that Steichen's, uh, Steichen's vision lives on. So thank you very much. Um, quite happy to take questions if you'd like. No answers, Gary. If you have a question, put your hand up and I'll bring the microphone, then everybody can hear the, the question as well as the answer. Okay, right. We turn this off now. If it's a difficult question, I'm going to ask my colleagues to step up. Does anybody have a question? Okay. Can you please pass it? Um, did Steichen... Did Steichen have a favorite photograph that you know of? Did Steichen have a favorite photograph that you know of? Maybe the portrait of Gloria Swanson, but with the veil. I'm trying to use the mic. Yeah, sorry, right. Uh, did he have a favorite photograph? I, I don't think so. I think he printed certain pictures over and over again, but they tend to be the celebrities. You know, that's, that was the disease of his time, too. Um, but you know, the family of man there were, there were 503 pictures in the family of man and he claimed to have looked through millions no I think he was, uh, he was always looking and always thinking about uh, new ways of combining pictures and, and reaching people and touching people he had done photographs about war which he did a show about the uh, Korean war um, which had turned people off he felt and uh, as a result the family of man was a positive spin on horrendous social problems. And for that, he needed many, many visions. He was attacked for that. He was attacked for suppressing the vision of the individual photographer uh, in favor of a, a grand statement. But, you know, looking back, it seemed like a very progressive idea at the time. Yes? Yeah, I was wondering. I as a photographer, and there was certainly photography long before he came along, did he have an influence or someone that he aspired to or looked up to? T tended to be painters. 
uh, tended to be that generation, the Picassos and the Matisses. And Brad Cousy was a great friend. Uh, there's a hilarious story. Do I have time for a hilarious story? Frank, he buys the bird, uh, bird in space, and he brings it in the, the mid-30s, he brings it to New York, and he stopped at customs. You know the bird in space is the same. Doesn't have the sound effect. But and he stopped at customs, and they say, what's that? And he says, uh, modern sculpture. And they say, uh, what's it called? And he says, bird in space. And the customs are on and says, no, can't be a bird, no feathers. And uh, he has to pay, they class it as a kitchen utensil. <laughs> and he has to pay $800 fine. Now, in 1935, that's a lot of money. Even if you're earning a million a year, um, it's a lot of money. And he tells the story to Mrs. Whitney of the Whitney Museum. And she puts her lawyers on this. And they go to court, and they ask Mr. Marcel Duchamp what he thinks about this, and they ask Alfred Stieglitz and Steichen, and they win. And it reclassed, and it's considered a, a victory for uh, modern art, because it will pave the way. So there's Steichen. There's Steichen. But I think, yeah, he turned it to think... He, he, he was a bit of an egotist, too. In, in the 46 shows he did at the Museum of Modern Art, he only did one one-man show, uh, his own. Did he do any technological advances with the, photo with the camera? Yeah. In fact, in, I mentioned the aerial photography in World War I. He improved aerial photography. He went up in those planes. Uh, he, he loved the technical challenge of the vibrating planes and the propeller. And how do you take sharp pictures? And uh, actually, he did a lot to advance the cause of aerial um, photography, which may have in, indeed... Uh, changed the, the conduct of the war because after aerial photography was perfected, each side started to manufacture false things on the ground like cut planes out of plywood and to fool the enemy. And the Germans actually took to start, started walking along barbed wire learning to get to their machine gun emplacements so they wouldn't leave footprints in, in the sand. So the other were going like this. So um, he also found that the Allies were all using different uh, standards different plate sizes, and he insisted that they uniformize so they could quickly share information. Also with the autochrome, the first method of color photography, um, that's another great little story, he becomes a champion of the autochrome, which is a very pointillist-looking color image. And Kodak didn't like this. Kodak, didn't, this, was, this was a French invention, and uh, Americans don't like French inventions. And uh, so what they did is they made Kodak sent out really bad autochromes, saying to people, look at, look, at, look at how bad it is. And Steichen and Stieglitz were outraged and made beautiful autochromes and showed them at their gallery in New York to counter this bad, uh, bad work at uh, being done by uh, their rivals. So yes, he was an inventor, uh, innovator, sorry, not an inventor. He was an innovator technically. He loved technical solutions. And don't forget what I told you about the plants. He hybridized plants. And in 1935, he actually organized an exhibition of his hybrid plants at the Museum of Modern Art. There's actually, people have their tr trouble getting around this. He had an exhibition of delphiniums at the Museum of Modern Art, the real plants, colors, and heights of flowers that people had never seen before. They were all his invention. And he had to change the flowers every four days. He went through something like 1,500 stems. 
But he's such a clever guy. We have pictures of fashion models sitting in his gallery because he took pictures and took them over to Vogue and sold them to Vogue. He was a, an entrepreneur at every level. Any other questions? Direct protégés, yeah. Absolutely. The, dire the direct one was uh, George Hoenigen Hühner, who is a Baltic baron and uh, had to flee the Russian Revolution and came to Paris and had to do something and fell into, because of his designs, got a job at Vogue. And then somebody didn't show up to take photographs, not Steichen, but someone else, and he stepped in, became a great photographer in his own right. And then Hoenigen Hühner influenced Horst, and Horst only died, um, what, a decade ago. Horst was working up until the 1980s. So those are the absolute direct descendants. But you can see, uh, you can see Bruce Weber, for example. There's a, there's, a, there's a clear line. As I say, these people are, all these fashion photographers are looking all the time. And, of course, they're, they're happier with a Blumenfeld. or they're, If they have a surreal interest, they're happier with a Blumenfeld than a Steichen. But Steichen's, uh, I would just like to end this by saying that I think Steichen's work here is really unrivaled. There's no other archive so complete for fashion. All the great couturiers are represented in, this, in his archive of 15 years. And as for the celebrities, there are the 1,000 of them. Novelists, playwrights, filmmakers, statesmen, um, poets, painters. It's just rich, rich, rich. And I think that is a legacy in itself. Thank you for downloading this Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. For more information, please visit us online at ago.net.